This is Josh Summers, and you're listening to Everyday Sublime, the podcast that endeavors to explore a full-spectrum spirituality. Okay, in service of exploring a full-spectrum spirituality, one of the um, questions that I often get, and it's a question that I ponder myself regularly, but that question is, what's the relationship between contemplative practice and maybe what what we might call the transformation of society? So what's the relationship between what we're doing on our mat or our cushion, and how does that work on the cushion support or um, connect with broader forms of social activism and social justice? And to explore that question, I, I try to look at the topic of racism, specifically race, racialization, and racism. And I try to see how the transformation of our consciousness through practice can help us um, essentially de-racialize ourselves and de-racialize others. And um, so that's at the heart of what this talk is about. Um, I should say up front, this conversation is extremely influenced, in a good way I would say, by conversations that I've been having, specifically some conversations with Greg Thomas, who was on the podcast recently, and Greg's colleague Amiel Handelsman, who's coming on the next episode. I'll be publishing that soon. Um, Both of them have collaborated on a book called How to Be an Anti-Race, Anti-Racist. And their view is that the anti-race piece is really a conscious rejection of the category of race, meaning the biological lie at the root of racism. They reject that, but also in rejecting that, they want to focus and mobilize energy to combat the manifestations of that lie in society, i.e. the anti-racist piece. So it's a it's kind of a unique perspective that I've that I haven't come across at large, and it's a it's a it's a way of looking at it that I think is a little bit more integral that brings potentially uh, more people to the same conversation. Um, and I think it, it offers an interesting path through some of the polarization we're seeing right now. So um, in, the, in, the, in the show notes, I'll be linking to a blog that Greg put out today called Why We Need to Deracialize Ourselves or Why We Need to Stop Racializing Each Other If We're Going to Combat Racism Effectively. Um, so I'll link to that blog and I'll give you my thoughts on the topic here. Specifically, my thoughts around, as a contemplative, how I think uh, the, the kind of insights that we develop about ourselves, about the nature of consciousness, uh, about the nature of consciousness and the nature of experience, how those insights can uh, literally transform our consciousness so that we stop seeing essence in ourselves and stop seeing essentialism in others, which is, again, part of the, the process of racialization. So, um, as I said in, in the talk itself, these are ideas that I'm, I'm exploring. It's a, it's a very sensitive topic that I care a lot about, and I am reading and studying and talking to many people, as many people as I can about this, um, trying to broaden my worldview and expand my sense of um, how we can bring about um, greater healing, particularly in light of the recent uh, racially motivated and racist uh, massacre in Buffalo, New York, which is still reeling in, in my mind. Um, 
So in light of all that, I, I want to give you today's talk and um, I welcome your feedback. If you have uh, critiques, fee uh, feedback, positive or negative, based on some of the things I'm reflecting on, I would love to hear from you. I, I don't pretend to have the final answers here by any stretch, but um, I think it's important as contemplatives that we seek ways of connecting the inner work we're doing with outer realization of transformation. So I welcome your thoughts. Please stay in touch. Let me know what you think, and I look forward to hearing from you. Without further ado, I now bring you today's talk, Deracializing Consciousness. So today, um, I was reminded by one of you um, that today is the full moon uh, day of May, which in the Buddhist world is a day of celebration. Uh, it's called Vesak. And uh, this is the day, the full moon day of, of May is the day in which both the Buddha's birth, his enlightenment, and death are celebrated. So each of those significant events, his birth, his awakening, and his death are, are all uh, seen as happening, having occurred on this, this particular day. Um, and his birth was about 563 years before Christ, which puts it back about 2,585, give or take, years ago. And it's, um, I want to, first, I want to extend my gratitude to the, the member of the Sangha, um, who I believe is, is based in Indonesia. She's from Indonesia. And she emailed me saying, Happy Vesak Day. Um, and then she included a link to the, the monastery in, in England um, in the Thai forest tradition that has many of the monastics that I've trained with. Um, uh, and they were celebrating that day together. And it was kind of an opportunity to see three very significant people and teachers that have influenced me, both Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Sachito, and Ajahn Amaro, kind of all on the same stage, sharing reflections. And it was just a very touching experience. And um, so just in light of that, in light that we are, in a sense, descendants, we're, 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 we can honor our ancestors or our spiritual ancestors, in that um, at least I consider the Buddha to be one of my spiritual ancestors as um, I have found putting into practice the teachings and reflections and um, trainings that he described to be in incredibly beneficial um, for myself. Um, and I think it has touched and transformed millions of people uh, since he was on this earth. And it's quite a testament to his awakening and his creative impact that we're still here 2,585 years later discussing, talking about, and, and applying uh, the lessons of his life in our lives. So as I like to sometimes say, our practice, you know, and, and I don't mean this in a, in a religious sense, but our practice, com committing time to exploring these teachings, to seeing how they function within our, within our own experience, um, coming to sessions like this or in other, other sanghas, 
connecting with other like-minded people, these activities of a practice are really the lifeblood of, these, of this tradition and all traditions, that they keep these traditions alive, coursing within our heart. And as I was you know, briefly reflecting on um, the significance of the Buddha's life today, um, one thing that I was came to my mind was how much of a uh, of a revolutionary he was, um, particularly at a societal level. That his awakening into what I'll be referring to as emptiness, or Another way of saying that is his awakening into the essential lessness, the lacking of essentialism in a human being was really a, um, a radical political pushback on a very rigidly stratified caste system in India. And he essentially wanted to smash the caste system. He says these hereditary, arbitrary classes of people are A, socially constructed, not intrinsic, and causing tremendous pain. So he welcomed into his Sangha members of any caste and, and sort of obliterated the conceptual notion of caste uh, with his teaching and practice. And just touching into re remembering that um, really brings me to what I've been wanting to talk about for a while and that I've been planning to talk about for a while, but is really a continuation. This Tonight's talk could be th seen as a continuation of a question that has come up again and again in our d conversations, which is what is the relationship between an individual's <clears throat> journey on the contemplative path which if you want to essentialize that is someone sitting down on a regular basis, just looking into themselves, which can seem um, self-focused, even solipsistic. I think I've shared this at one point, but sometime before I left for Asia after college, so just after I'd finished college and was heading off to Asia for several years with the intention to go to India and study, um, my grandfather, my father's father, called quite concerned. And he said to me, well, you know, what do you plan to do in India? What are you going to do there? And I, knowing the direction that his particular worldview and mind was going with that question, I very sarcastically said, well, Gramps, I'm just going to do some high-quality navel-gazing. Because I knew that that's the, the, the kind of common perception from people from his cut, from his, from his world. And I didn't know my grandfather very well, but I knew him enough to know that he didn't think a lot of introspection. He didn't think a lot of contemplative meditation. Um, <clears throat> and he kind of branded it as navel-gazing. So that's, you know, that's not a perception. So I know it can seem like that to people from the outside, that when we sit with ourselves, we're kind of involved in an inwardly gazing practice. And that raises the question, well, how does an inwardly gazing practice 
complement or contribute to a process of social collective healing, social collective transformation, social collective evolution. And so that's a question that I'm just holding up and I'm, I don't pretend to have the entire, I don't pretend to have an answer here necessarily. I'm gonna offer some views and some thoughts that I've been, I've been pondering. But one, I would say one form of this, of an answer to that question, one form of an answer has come to me through some conversations I've been having both on and offline. <clears throat> and last week I recommended as, as homework to go listen to my interview with Greg Thomas, who, <clears throat> what, who is a, a writer and a journalist. He's written about jazz for a number of years. Um, he's involved with the Lincoln Center uh, cultural jazz uh, formation at, in, in New York City. Um, he is a leadership consultant himself. He works in executive leadership and team building with something he calls the Jazz Leadership Project, which teaches team building using jazz capacities um, in organizations. And he's also... Um, as you may have heard in that podcast, but he's also this, a senior fellow at an institute called the Institute for Cultural Evolution, which is a think tank out in Boulder that is inspired in, in many ways by something called integral theory. And integral theory is a kind of a, a worldview map of understanding as much as we can about everything, essentially, that a philosopher and spiritual te- uh, writer, Ken Wilber, uh, developed many years ago. Um, and I feel like there's a next generation of thinkers and um, individuals who are taking integral theory and really bringing it into more and more of, I would say, it's, it's sort of at the beginning of entering more common public discourse. It was very fringe for a long time, but it, it's, it's slowly seeping in. I'm seeing signs of its integration in more mainstream channels now which is all good. And that's really the reason I wanted to have Greg on the podcast. I wanted to talk to him about jazz and race and healing, collective healing, and um, particularly how his, his understanding of integral theory may offer a, a healing path forward. <clears throat> and um, after the, the interview I had with him, we, we chatted for about 15, 20 minutes afterwards, and he he recommended a, a, a whole list of authors for me to check out. One of them was Albert Murray, who is a, a very serious um, intellect um, in the sort of 50s and 60s. It was Greg's mentor. Um, he also recommended a contemporary author named Charles Johnson, who won the National Book Award several years back for his book called Middle Passage. And in the emails that I've had with Greg, whenever I mention, oh, I'm reading the book, that book you recommended, he, he always responds with such delight. He says, I'm so glad to hear you're reading Grandmaster Ellison, or I'm so glad to hear you're reading Grandmaster Thomas. He considers these, these minds to be the, the great masters um, of our culture. So sometimes I might refer to him as Grandmaster Thomas, is all I'm trying to say, which is, and that's a reference to his, his respect for the his mentors and influences. 
Now, in the interview, <clears throat> I we got to the talking about kind of the contemporary discourse on race, the contemporary discourse on identity, and contemporary kind of a spectrum of potential solutions for, for moving forward. And around that time, there was about a five to ten minute chunk of of Greg talking where he said a few things that looking back at it, 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 it I can see that these things he said functioned like a Zen master hitting a, loud, a large gong. Like he said these things and it was like a gong went off and it started to reverberate through my being. And I realized that I couldn't put my finger on it exactly at the time, but I knew kind of in, implicitly or intuitively that he was saying something of profound value that I hadn't really been able to put together in my own head before. It was kind of like what he was saying was like a key opening up a new way of seeing something that's right in front of me that I, I hadn't been able to like articulate myself. And I want to just share with you a little bit of that passage and then try to put this passage of the interview into context with what I think we're up to in the Dharma, what, what, I, what I think we're up to in, in, in practicing the Buddhist, the Buddhist Dharma. So at one point, Greg said, there's such a confusion between race and culture, race and ethnicity, race and ancestry, race and nationality. It's just confusion, he said. So I like, this is what he said, I like to separate those things so we can look at them individually and get some clarity through, through the, within the complexity of it all. And then he said, this is when the, the, start, the gong started to go off. He said, in one key dimension that many are not aware of is the very process of racialization of which there are five steps, he said. And he said, these are five steps according to the author Carlos Hoyt Jr., who wrote a book called The Arc of a Bad Idea, Understanding and Transcending Race. And I've gone back to this conversation several times, so I've transcribed it, but I've, I've listened to it at least two or three times in, 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 um, as an episode. And I've gotten a lot out of this, this little section, but he says the first step in racialization is you take, you select certain human characteristics and you select these characteristics as meaningful signs of racial difference. So you take certain characteristics and, and see those as meaningful signs of something. Could be skin color, hair texture, he said, cranial facial features, and so on. That's the first step. The second step is then you sort people into races based on variations in those characteristics. So you get light to dark skin, straight to coiled hair, thin, narrow lips versus full lips, etc. So first you take certain characteristics and make them significant of something. And then you divide or categorize 
a population or populations based on those characteristics. The third step in racialization, then he says you attribute personality traits, you attribute behavior and other characteristics to people classified as members of those particular quote unquote races. Now here's the, the, the next ones are kind of when the, when the, when the screw or the, the stake gets dri driven in further. Then number four, the fourth step is you essentialize. And as soon as he said that word, essentialize, this is when something about the, the Dharma started to kick in for me. But he says, when you, you essentialize those purported racial differences as natural, biological, immutable, and hereditary. So you essentialize. You attribute personality traits in the third step, behavioral traits, other characteristics to people in these categories of race. And then you essentialize those. You essentialize those differences as natural, biological, hereditary, hereditary and immutable. Then the fifth step, then there's action. I would actually, he says that there's action and behavior. I might, and I've been wondering if there's intention, action and behavior based on those purported racial differences that justify unequal treatment. So what he's doing with these five steps, I think is describing a, a line between the social construction of the idea of race which is to select certain characteristics and then project essential things about anybody with those particular characteristics, which is the racialization piece. So from the concept of race, you get a process of racialization, which leads to the fifth step of racism, which is actions and behaviors, laws, structures, based on those purported racial differences that justify unequal treatment. Now, if you're feeling a little bit like, you know, you're, if you're aware of your heart rate, I was aware of my heart rate when he, when he was talking about this. And I had to go back and listen to it a few times, which I was grateful for. <clears throat> but he says the process becomes a feedback loop the false concept of race, the lie that there's biological race. There is no biological race. So he said, as humans, we share 99.9% .9 of our genome with every other human on the planet. The genes that code for skin code for nothing else. So the lie of the concept of race leads to rationalization as a process, which then becomes racism, which then in turn reinforces the idea or lie of race that began it. And he described it as, as the vicious cycle. <clears throat> so 
And I really appreciate the way he broke that down. And I'm, I've been meaning to go read the book that he referred it to, the Ark of the Bad, the Ark of a Bad Idea by Carlos Hoyt Jr. But as I was kind of digesting this in the in the interview, he then said something very interesting. Greg Thomas said something very interesting. He said, "When we can take it, when we can take the process of rationalization from being subject to it." And, and I'll come, I have some things to say about this shortly from some other sources, but I just make it an assumption. We have all been born as subjects into a racialized world. It doesn't matter what skin color we have. We are all subjects to a racialized world. But Greg says, when we take it, when we can take it from being subjects to a racialized worldview, from being subject to it, to looking at it as an object, to looking at racialization as an object and being able to see how it works and then work to not racialize ourselves or others, he said, now we're getting to where we can start to actually get off the karmic wheel. There's a lot there. I'll come back to it shortly. This whole business of stepping out of being a subject to something to making it an object to study. But then he said, it was like the third or second gong ring in my head was when he said, I am an anti-race, anti-racist. I'm against racism by being against the very concept of race and the very process and system of racialization. And at the time, when he said that phrase, I am an anti-race, anti-racist, even though he just explained what racialization was to me, the whole process, I didn't feel totally comfortable with that. I was like, what, is, what does that actually mean? Do we need to say I'm an anti-race, anti-racist? And what would that even look like? I kind of understood what anti-racism was about, about fighting the ongoing <clears throat> systemic inequality across all sorts of markers, whether it's voting, healthcare, housing, criminal justice. I'm very aware of the legacy of racism in, in these systems and what anti-racism involves in, trying, in terms of combating those injustices. But the anti-race piece really kind of both intrigued me, but it also confused me at the time. So before I tackle the anti-race part, which I think is actually, the more I've reflected on it, I see what he meant by anti-race, anti-racism. The anti-race piece, I think, really speaks to the transformation that under, we undergo through practicing the Buddha Dharma. That's sort of my thesis, which I'm trying to lay out here. But when Greg said, we can take rationalization from being the subject to it, to making an object. 
immediately in my mind, my thoughts flashed to a very, very famous statement by the Zen master and founder of the Soto School of Zen, whose name was Dogen. And Dogen said this about Buddhism, or about the Buddha, the Buddha path. You may remember this, you may have heard this, maybe sometimes a meme on social media. But Dogen said, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. Goes on a little bit, but those three initial statements are enough to work with for a little bit. The Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the myriad things. Now you may hear that, like, that doesn't sound like anything Greg was just saying about racialization. But if we think about it for a moment, the self that the Buddha is asking us to look at in our direct experience while we meditate is a self that we take to be separate, permanent, and possessing essential traits. He says, the sense of self we take ourselves to be as being separate and as permanent from the rest of the, separate from the rest of the world as possessing sort of essential traits, the Buddha is saying we need to look at that. We need to, and Dogen is saying we need to study that. And at the heart, as I've been trying to say from week to week here or there, at the heart of the Buddha's teaching, what really brought him a, a deep transformation of his consciousness was seeing the empty nature of self. Now, empty doesn't mean it's like a vacuum. Empty doesn't mean it, there's, a, it's, there's just like a, a vacuum or void. Emptiness in Buddhism refers to, you know, like anything, it needs to be empty of something. And it's what it, the emptiness that, it's, uh, that, it, that it possesses is emptiness of permanence, emptiness of essential nature, emptiness of separation. And so when we practice, we study ourself. We study the nature of ourself. And when we really look at what we take ourself to be, which is some, what we take ourselves to be, that the fancy word is it's an aggregate, but maybe in more common language you could say, we take ourselves to be some constellation, maybe that's a better word, a constellation of sensation, feeling, and thought. But when we look at feelings, when we look at sensations, when we look at thoughts, we see an 
unending process of change. Now that's, that might say, sound something like, oh, you know, I need to believe that. I need to agree with it. You don't. You don't need to take my word for it. This is just a pointer to look into. This is what the Buddhist suggestion for how to look into our experience. If we think we have a permanent essential nature, he would just say, show it to me. Where is it? Is it in a feeling? Well, no, because every feeling you have is changing. There's no permanent essential nature there. Is it in sensation? No, because every ch- sensation you have is, is impermanent and, un- and changing. There's no essential nature there. Is it a thought? Is your permanent nature in, in thought? And the, and the answer is no. So he didn't, def- he didn't say there is no essential nature. He just says he really, the, the, the more nuanced way of describing his insight was that what we take to be essential nature is impermanent. And that's the key, that's a key kind of nuanced point on this. Because sometimes people say, oh, the Buddha said there's no self. That's not accurate. He didn't say there's no self. He just said what we take to be a permanent essential self is impermanent. He left out what the self is. He didn't, just like, you know, other Forms of mysticism say, you know, you just can't really say what the ultimate truth is. So you leave off trying to describe it and you simply define it by what it isn't and let the direct insight arise of what it is. So when Greg Thomas talked about making racialization object, to study it so that we can stop racializing ourselves, meaning stop imputing essentialization on ourselves and stop projecting essentialization on others. I started here a resonance with this teaching from Dogen. Dogen again says the, the Buddha way is to study the self to study, to search for, you could say, where is this essential, unchanging entity? Or as Charles Johnson said, looking for the self, (laughs) looking for the self is like looking for weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. We have false intelligence telling us that it's there. Now, in Dogen's term, when we exhaustively look for this essential self and come up empty-handed, literally, the next statement is to study the self is to forget the self. Meaning you don't forget the the sense of a self, but you let your view that there is a permanent, essential, separate self can no longer be sustained. So in these, between the first statement that Togen gives, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. The second statement being to study the self is to forget the self. What I hear there is that Dogen is describing a transformation of consciousness 
in the beginning, one's consciousness has a lens that sees essence in oneself. With practice, that lens becomes clearer, sharper. And as the lens becomes clearer, one forgets the notion of an essential self. It falls away. It's, it's, it doesn't, there's no evidence for it. There's no direct experience to support it. And he says, once that sense of self that is separate and essential and permanent is forgotten, one becomes illuminated or actualized, the translations differ, but one becomes actualized by myriad things. One becomes illuminated illuminated by 10,000 things. That third statement to me signifies the, the experience of what happens when the perception of separation falls away and one is unified with the world of experience, of everything. The 10,000 things become unified within your being. You become unified with the 10,000 things. And I may have, to, I'll, may have to speak to that third part next week a little bit. <clears throat> I'm on the spot trying to edit and make sure I stay within a reasonable time frame tonight. There's a lot here. Going back to a book I read earlier this year, which was recommended by a Sangha member, America's Racial Karma by Larry Ward. He speaks to how we, how we are born into a consciousness, a racialized consciousness that sees essence, that sees essentialism in others. That's not to say everyone's racist, which would be to sign on with systemic structures of injustice or practices in politics of injustice, but that we are racialized. He says, we find ourselves living in a racialized world that existed before we were born and our minds have been conditioned to see race as real. So just as we are conditioned to see our self, essential self, a separate self as real, I've talked about different forms of conditioning in past talks, he's also adding into this conditioning. We are conditioned through the racialized process to see race as real. And we have to remember race as a scientific construct is a lie. This racialized awareness, he says, permeates us like a disease in the psyche. A disease in our psyche, cementing our minds to a system of social worth and value by skin pigmentation. It animates our thinking, speech, behavior, individually and collectively.
Larry continues, he says, if we look deeply into the mind and body's role in creating, nurturing, and protecting our racialized awareness, if we look deeply into it, what Greg is saying is we study it, we study the racialized process, we see an opportunity, we see an opportunity for transformation. America's racial karma, he says, invites us to be attentive to our heart's conditioning. It invites us to embrace our shared racial trauma at its roots, which again is the false construct of race. And heal our compromised social imagination. So maybe we may be the ones who come through the mists of racial ignorance into what we may call a good society. Now I am getting a little bit squeezed on time, so I wanna say maybe a couple concluding things and then leave you with another reflection. When I spoke to Greg and he talked about being anti-race, anti-racist, and then um, his colleague actually reached out to me after that interview. Um, his colleague's name is Am Amiel Handelsman. And Amiel Han sent me a, a, a short essay that he wrote called How to Be an Anti-Race, Anti-Racist. And he said, a lot of people when they first encounter what he's trying to reflect on around deracialization of the mind or deracialization of consciousness. People often object thinking by deracializing will we'll erase the legacy of racism. That by deracializing and really refuting the premise of racialization, by refuting the lie of biological race. That people are afraid that that will kind of negate the need or ignore or erase the need to tackle the legacy of racism, which is the anti-racism um, sort of platform. And from his perspective, the two are not mutually exclusive. And he says they're actually intimately dependent. Because he says if we don't go to the root of this pathological tree and uproot the racialized conditioning to see, even on an implicit way, essential difference because of our racialization, if we don't uproot that, the legacy of racism will live on. So for him, he's pro-anti-racism. Greg and Amiel would, would say they're both very dedicated, and I think this is, this is you know, very essential. They're dedicated through action to combat the legacy of racism and how it, form, it forms in our society still. But they're also passionate and this is what I'm, I've been reflecting on. They're passionate about the importance of deracializing our own minds. 
And that brings me to this passage from Charles Johnson, who has written many books that involve reflections on Buddhism and race and culture and writing. But Charles Johnson said in one of his essays in a book called Taming the Ox, he quotes the Buddha. He says, the Buddha in the Dharmapada said, all that we are is the result of what we have thought. All that we are is the result of what we have thought and the transformation the transformation of sociological and psychological structures must take place initially in our own minds and those of others if we truly hope to address the root cause of social suffering. And that, to me, brings me back to the question I began with. What is the relationship between our contemplative navel-gazing and social transformation? And what I'm trying to suggest, and something to reflect on and consider, is that in deeply examining our own nature, meaning the nature of our experience, the nature of the experience of ourself. Seeking, if you will, what is essential. Seeking if there's essence there, permanent, unchanging, essentialized essence. And when we, our awareness wakes up to the emptiness of self, by seeing through the illusion of essence within, we upgrade our perception, we upgrade our lens of consciousness that can now no longer see essence in others, can no longer project essential traits based on a few variations and characteristic on the surface. Which brings us back to relating to each other as individuals that are very unique, have unique stories. We can't say, oh, that person's white, that person's black, that person has, well, because of that skin, they, we know that they're, they're like that, they're going to be in this political camp, they're going to be in that socioeconomic background, they're going to have that health. We don't know. We can't know. And yet, as Amiel said to me in, in our pre-interview chat last week, he said, Racialization is in the air that we breathe. So without a medicine to undo that perception of essentialization, we'll still stay on that negative karma wheel. So these are just some thoughts I have about this, this theme and this topic. Um, again, by no means was what I shared tonight meant to be complete. Um, it sort of represents some of the conversations and 
ideas that I've been pondering. But given where we are, given the state of the world, given that there was another mass shooting recently in the United States, in honor of the Buddha's birthday, his awakening, and his death, I want to try to articulate the essence of what I see in his teachings and how they apply to our life right here as we gather together. Okay, thanks so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the episode and I hope some of my, some of my reflections are um, helpful to you in terms of exploring uh, this theme, this theme of racialization, race, and racism. Please do let me know what you think. Send me an email at josh at joshsummers.net. Give me your criticism, your feedback, what you like, what you don't like. Um, I'm very interested in hearing uh, others' perspective on this. And to that end, I would really encourage you, if you're interested, to check out the blog uh, that Greg Thomas and his colleague Amiel Handelsman have written um, on this topic. Um, and just to plug this, in the next episode, I'll be releasing my conversation with Amiel where we look at it, talk about his book, How to Be an Anti-Race, Anti-Racist, which has been very influential on me, particularly in terms of seeing how I think the Dharma and meditation practice fits into um, a, a, the broader project of deracializing our minds and each other. So do check that stuff out, and I hope it supports a more full-spectrum spirituality in your life and in your practice. And on that note, uh, just given the, the flames of the world, as I keep mentioning, they keep burning, and um, yeah, we need people practicing. We need sane, clear, calm, compassionate individuals. And for that reason, I thank you for your practice. So until next episode, take good care, stay safe, keep practicing, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All the best.